Good morning. Good morning. Nice to see you. Thanks for being here. Um, we'll get to the remarkable life of Jesus in just a minute, um, but I wanted to um, make some comments here um, and uh, bring closure to this project thing that we've been in the middle of what seems like <laughs> a year, uh, very intensely for the last five or six weeks, praying and thinking about um, how it is we move forward with that Franz Road building. And last week, uh, we came having prayed and listened uh, and um, used our minds, and we obeyed, we, we acted, we committed in the ways that God led us to, com- uh, to go. So um, let, me, let me recap this for you and, and bring it to a close. So as I said, last week, following six weeks of all that faith, heart, work, uh, 114 Vista, what we call it a household, right? Sometimes individuals, sometimes families, but 114 Vista households committed $1,333,854 in one-time gifts by the end of the year. Almost over $1.3 million in five weeks by the end of the year. That's phenomenal. In addition to um, regular giving increases of $334,000 over two years. That's like a 12% increase in our regular giving. Um, It's a lot of money. The board of directors, elders, uh, along with uh, a handful of uh, what we're calling facility search advisors, uh, met Tuesday evening for three hours. (laughs) It was a lively, rigorous honest discussion about those results and our options. And what has been unanimously concluded um, is that although the commitments are commendable and generous, it's just hard to get over that, they don't rise to the level necessary to uh, make a competitive bid on that building, uh, not for that Franz Road building, and to cover the costs associated with uh, increased operations and renovations. We needed probably twice that amount of money. Also of note, 65 households, which is about one-third of our regular giving base, did not commit to the project at all. The reasons for that are, uh, they're somewhat, but not entirely known. We've been in conversation with all sorts of people with different views and approaches and understandings of this project, and we'll continue to dialogue. We've got some surveys we're putting together to try to understand everybody's position on this thing, um, but we want to understand what is uh, clearly were some reservations about that, about that project and those commitments. As an added indication <laughs> of God's direction for Vista, another buyer has entered the negotiations for that building and doing so at a price point beyond our reach. So if there was any question, I, I, don't know that we, I don't know that we could have been in the race, quite honestly, at this point. So um, maybe this is a very practical point. I don't even know if you need to hear me say this, but since there is no Franz Road purchase, there is no expectation for your one-time commitments to that project. So it's a thank you for those commitments. 
but we don't expect you to follow through with that when there's no project. I mean, of course, we, we are challenged going forward in our finances. They continue to be a challenge. So just, you know, you re-engage your usual year-end giving considerations, your regular giving, and those sorts of things. It's going to be very important as we wrap up the year and launch into 2022. So it's still our priority to acquire uh, uh, and secure some permanent space um, in the Northwest. It matches the size of our gatherings and the capacity of our budget. Uh, in the meantime, we've secured, um, in many cases I'm talking to <laughs> the Northwest community, we, we have secured uh, the rec center for the, the, the distant future. I, I know we're, I, we may be even through April. So we, we have a place we will continue to gather, but we will continue to look for a place that gives us 24-7 um, availability. So we're, aban we're abandoning that track altogether, basically. Um, but that, that doesn't diminish the good and meaningful work we did. That, that's, I'm not saying that as a, you know, like a throwaway compliment. We, we did. We listened to God. We, we allowed our faith to be stretched. We allowed our hearts to be tested. We engaged our minds, all in order to discover God's direction. That is good, good work. Whatever, 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 think of it this way, whatever future destination God has for us, it will require faith. And my presumption is that it will require faith more such than what we had five weeks ago. Do you know what I mean? Like we need more faith to go where God wants us to go. And this exercise has put us in a place of greater listening. And we of course, must assume that he needs us there. Uh, nothing has been wasted. Uh, are any of these events and arrivals and outcomes a surprise to God? No. Uh, and and it, has, it has no impact on our ability to carry on the mission of God as worshipful, relational, missional people reaching more and further for those who have yet come to know Jesus. It doesn't impact that at all. So be encouraged. Be encouraged. God is good. You know this phrase, God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. Christmas is just around the corner. Our Christmas program preparations are well underway. If history repeats and God arrives, it will undoubtedly be an encouraging process and an experience not only for us, but untold hundreds and hundreds um, They'll find, people will find something through the message that we declare that's unfindable apart from God. So um, I wondered if one of our elders, Todd, you want to kind of close this time with prayers, bringing in lefty, is that someone else coming in? Is someone coming in from the bullpen? Gary, you, are you going to come up and join? Yeah, we're just going to pray. Um, thank God for the church and... I wanted to uh, amend one word. Wow, only one. Yeah, usually, usually it's paragraph after paragraph. I, uh, I want to uh, interpret the word unanimous that Mike used. It is unified. Yeah. He meant we are unified. These elders and the others who are in Dublin this morning uh, are unified in knowing what 
God has said just this far. Yeah. And we're unified in hoping to know mm -hmm. more. Sisters and brothers, would you stand? Mm. Would you stand? We're going to pray. Mm. Lord God, your majesty fills the earth and it penetrates deeply into each of our lives. And these sisters and these brothers are following you because you have called us. You've called us each, but Jesus, you've called us all. We are called out by you as a congregation spread across these towns and cities in, uh, in this area and meeting in two places, but one church to worship, one church to serve. Give us wisdom to know the next steps. Give us opportunities that we haven't even imagined yet to serve you because we want um, to lift up the name of Jesus. We want mm -hmm. the name of Jesus to be famous, to be glorified, and for uh, people to know of his salvation. God grant this, we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Todd. Uh, there's one other uh, person I would like to have you add to your prayer list. Let me give you some context before I show you a couple pictures. Um, we have a partnership with uh, an, um, an association of churches in Kenya. Uh, Longtime friends, Pastor Dan, uh, a peer of mine. We've known each other for uh, 15 years, and this church has been instrumental in building buildings for their churches to live in. I think we're, we've built, oh gosh, I don't know, six, seven, eight different churches over there. They've got 22 churches. Um, they have kids that are, um, uh, we, our kids are the same age. Our families are deeply connected. Their youngest child is the namesake of my wife. Funny story. Um, his wife was pregnant while he was here in 2009, and he didn't know that. She didn't know that, and she got very sick while he was away, deathly sick. Um, when they finally got, when he finally got back there, that she had recovered, and they discovered that she was pregnant. While Dan was here, there was one particular moment when we were trying to get ready to go somewhere, and I said to my wife, let's, I get into this sort of... Uh, pseudo-African kind of a dialect when I'm around Pastor Dan. And I was like, Tammy, we must go. Come, let's go. Tamilita, let's go. We must leave now. Dan heard that and assumed that Tammy's full name was Tamilita. <clears throat> and he named his daughter Tamilita. It's beautiful. She is 12 years old now. Uh, right, 12 years old, and this week she was in a, uh, an accident. She was on her way to school. I don't know the details. She was struck, and she broke her femur. Her leg is shattered, um, and I would love for you to pray for her. She's already been through surgery. You can get off of that picture before people throw up. This is Tamilita. Um, she'll be uh, undergoing quite a bit of rest and probably a lot of pain. Like That's a nasty injury, so please pray for Pastor Dan's daughter, Tamilita, she recovers from that. We're glad that she's okay. Could have been much worse, of course, but my heart is breaking for her. And I haven't seen Pastor Dan for over two years, and I need to get over there. We need to get back together. 
All right, so um, the remarkable life of Jesus. I want you to imagine uh, if you had the power, imagine if you had the, the ability, the capacity to circumnavigate or eliminate any and every problem and every pain in your life. If you had the capacity to dispatch all the enemies, all the difficulties, imagine that you could do that. The pain is going to arrive. The trouble is, is on your doorstep. A, a tragedy has struck. And you had the power to change that and eliminate that and keep all problems, all difficulties, all challenges, all pain away from you. Would you do it? Would you not be, on some level, insane not to do it? Pain is on its way, trouble is on its way, and you have the power to avoid it or extinguish it. I suspect if you were given that power in your 40s, maybe your 30s, you, you might by that point in time have the wisdom to know that the struggles and the difficulties and the pains of life actually have purpose and they grow you up and they mature you. And so that you, you might not utilize that power in many cases, but I would imagine even then in some cases, maybe the most severe cases, you would do it. You would exercise that power. Now, if you were given that power when you were three years old, four years old, I would wager to say right now that if you were then 45, you would have no maturity whatsoever. I don't know that you would even survive life, really, in a sense, if you could avoid it all. And you certainly would at three years old. Can you imagine if you had that power at three years old? And how, you, how your life would be built, how your whole life would be built by exercising this power to avoid it, whatever. Well, we have to be careful because some of us, some of you, have the means to avoid hard things. Every generation of parents comes along, mine included, and we get better and better at protecting our children. Worse and worse at allowing them to struggle. My mom would just pack me a lunch and then let me run out into the woods, a thousand acre woods, for hours. No idea where I'm at. And I can tell you if I were to talk to my mom today, say, Mom, <laughs> do you know what was going on out there? <laughs> do you know how close I came to losing my life multiple times? She would say, yeah, well, you needed that. <laughs> this, I would argue, is the single most remarkable characteristic about Jesus. He 
has that and had that power. Every time Jesus suffered, every time he was accused, every time he could have easily eliminated that problem or those people. People lied about him. And in most cases, he'd let it be. We've sprung into this study of the book of Mark and the life of Christ from Romans chapter 5. That 16 week study ended up revolving around this verse in Romans chapter 5. You, hopefully by now you've got it committed in memory, at least in some sort, that we, we, don't, we don't only glory in God, we glory in our struggles. We glory in our struggles uh, so that, and in them, we experience perseverance and deepening of character and eventually Hope that the struggles of life allow us to experience the perseverance of God, the deepening of our character, and a hope that is unreachable through any other route. Jesus' life is the epitome of that path with one little difference. He struggled. He was strengthened by the Spirit of God through it all. His character was deepened. The scriptures say that he matured and grew in stature. He was deepening as a person, as a human, and not only did he have and find the hope of God, his life became our hope. His life of struggle and perseverance and depth and hope actually results in our living the same life with him as the hope. You catching the... We jumped out of Matthew, uh, Mark 1 into Matthew chapter 4 because Mark, in typical fashion for Mark, says, oh, and then this thing happened in the wilderness. <laughs> and Mark's like, oh, 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 let's talk about what happened out there in the wilderness. So we look at Matthew chapter 4, and this is what we find. This is what we've been studying. So this is a little bit of recap. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Don't forget that. This is a big part of life. This is hard for us to grasp. The Spirit of God led Jesus into the presence of evil for God's work. <laughs> Woo! <-hoo. clears throat> 
The Spirit of God is often the reason we have the circumstances that we have, you could argue, is even the reason that we are battling with evil. To be tempted by the devil. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, if you're the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And we realized, oh, this isn't just a temptation. Yes, the, the evil is the tempter, but God is the tester. This entire experience in the wilderness for Jesus is a temptation, of course, by the devil, but it is a test of God. God is testing Jesus. And what's a test? The test reveals the truth. What's imperative to be seen and to know about Jesus is who he truly is. That's why the devil said, hey, if you are the son of God, and God's like, I'm going to show the whole world, he is my son. Watch what happens in this test. I'm going to reveal what it is. It turns out this is God revealing the truth about Jesus, testing him in a way that allows who he is to emerge. And he says, hey, why don't you turn these stones into bread if you're hungry? And Jesus says, man doesn't live on bread alone. He does live on bread, but it's not the sum total of life. Jesus says, look, you're trying to get me to save my physical life and the life of God and the life from God and the life we live by God's grace is not strictly physical. There's something much deeper going on here. We live on every word that comes from the mouth of God. We, we, our life isn't what you say it is, evil one. Life is not simply about bread and eating. Life is what God says it is. The point here is that the evil one is trying to get Jesus to look at his circumstances and allow those circumstances to define God. He's trying to get uh, Jesus, and the, the same tactic is used for us, is try to get us to look at our circumstances and question the power of God and the compassion of God and the home of God, quite honestly, to forget that we are eternal beings and that this life is a, a mere vapor, a breath. Our circumstances, when we listen to the whispers and the temptations of evil, cause us to forget who God is and where he is and who we are. How could you allow this, God? Why would you do this? You must not care. You must not be strong. You don't care if I'm dying. And Jesus says, it's not all about that. And Jesus, along with all those who follow him, believe that God's presence and his depth and breadth of provision are better than the physical. We believe that the love of God we believe our love of God and the loyalty and the trust in the Father's words to me that reassure me and strengthen me and guide me are more real than the circumstances that I find myself in. Do you hear me? 
the love of God and the trust of God and the loyalty that we have and the provision of God and the deep presence that we know, the reassurance of God and the strength of God and the guidance of God is more real than the circumstances, no matter how difficult they are. This is profound stuff. Life is not about bread alone. It's about the personal, eternal, unconditional fatherhood of God. I was at a board meeting this week. It has something remotely to do with all of these college churches that are being planted around the country. And I was sitting across at dinner with, um, Tammy was there once a year, this group of people invite this board invites the spouses to come and be a part, and they treat them to a nice meal, and we all go together and greet one. We haven't done that for a couple years for obvious reasons. And I was sitting across the t- table from one of the smartest people I know. This guy is a retired um, consultant uh, from uh, Ernst & Young, and in his retirement, he is getting a PhD. That's what he's doing with his retirement. <clears throat> and he understood through dialogue, what Tammy does and her counseling profession and her speaking um, uh, engagements with college and young people. And he said, what are you finding? What are you finding in young people? What, what, what is the thing? What is the, the problem? You know, what, what, what do you see? And Tammy said, it's easy. No foundation. And she said, among Christian, young Christian leaders are blown by the winds. They don't have a solid core foundation upon which they can drop no further than. When life comes and knocks them, they lose their way. This is the threat. This is the, this is the place that, that evil would have us go is into these spaces where we have no fundamental core understanding of God and life and eternity, and it's all about this world. So when this world goes upside down, you go upside down. Test number two, Matthew chapter four again. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. He said, if you're the son of God, same tactic. Let me, let me cast doubt on who you are. Throw yourself down, for it's written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the sun. And Jesus said, it's also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus is on this high place, either, either for real or figuratively. It, it, it's hard to determine. He was out in the wilderness. Did he? T- who knows? But he, here he is on the, on the temple, the highest point of the temple, and the devil's saying, throw yourself off of here and God will save you. Uh, when I was a kid, I was continuing and continually trying to fly. Since that was a very young age, I wanted to fly. And one of my favorite programs, I was at the very end of black and white TV, was Superman. With the original and only Superman, <laughs> George Reeves. 
one of the most low-budget TV shows you could ever watch. I think you could literally see the table that George Reeves was laying on when he was flying. And obviously, if you're a fan of Superman, as a five-year-old, you understand the key to flying is the cape. We had, fortunately, half a dozen or a dozen capes folded nicely in the linen closet. <laughs> and I asked my mom to add a cape to my attire, which she did. She tied a towel of some sort around my neck, the closest one to red that I could find, and I would run around the yard and I would try to fly. And if memory serves, I did okay. I actually was able to get some lift on occasion. This is what I thought. The faster I ran, the more I could get. Actually, I did a lot better if I could uh, leap off of like a table. I could feel it. I was this, this close. One of, the, one of my favorite parts of my day was hearing my father pull into the driveway from work. And you could hear it back then because there were stone driveways. So you could hear the cars pull into the stone driveway. And I would bust out the door and I would run to my father. And in this particular day, I had my cape still on. So I got a pretty quick jump. <clears throat> and we had a retaining wall along the edge of our driveway because the driveway went down to a split-level house. It was a low garage. So at the, at, the, at the street level, the retaining wall was four inches. At the garage level, it was about six or seven feet. My dad would come down to the garage, park his car. And the way my dad tells the story is he was getting his briefcase and his drawings, he was an engineer, out of the back of his car, and he heard me coming, and for some reason it dawned on him, and he turned, and I was in midair, <laughs> so he dropped everything and caught me. There is no better place to try to fly but into the arms of a trustworthy father. which I am fortunate to have had. In a very wicked twist on this story, this is precisely what evil is trying to do with Jesus here. He's taking him where? To the temple. Who lives in the temple? God, his father. Right to the edge of the father, near the father, above the father, you might even say, metaphorically speaking, and then compels him to leap into the father's arms. Why not? Seems a very natural, good, and beautiful thing. Jesus, leap into the Father's arms. If you're the Son of God and he is God, he will catch you. He will send his angels and lift you up in their hands and you won't strike the ground. Seems like a very natural, good thing. That it will come clear to you, I hope, if I do my job, how wicked this is and how tragic the ending would be have been had Jesus jumped. Evil's come in full force here, twisting scripture to, to manipulate the situation. For it is written, and it was, it was written. It's a common tactic. I could, I could go off on for 15 to 20 minutes here on, on a riff right here. I can tell you right now, you have been subject to the twisting of Scripture, 
the, under, the misunderstanding of Scripture into actions that are ungodly based on Scripture, attitudes. It's a dangerous thing. And evil is behind it every time. He uses Psalm 91 in this case. Psalm 91 is intended, read it when you get home, it's a beautiful articulation, a beautiful poem to articulate the compassionate character of God, a rescuer. And evil uses it not to declare who God is, but to set up a circumstances within which God would not only be able to prove himself, but would be forced to do so. From this high point, evil said, Jesus, hurl yourself into certain death and you will be simply providing God an opportunity to show his strength and his compassion, to prove his love to you by rescuing you and affirm how important you are. But what's really going on is this is a wicked, twisted effort to take what is a rock-solid truth about who God is on his own, apart from us, apart from his creation, God is who he is. And the psalmist captures it. This is who he is. And instead... Evil is twisting this and making God into a tool for his use. It shifts the definition of God as holy, mighty, self-existent creator into God the Santa Claus or the genie in the bottle that is there to do my bidding. Evil is contorting this poem about the nature of God into a formulaic solution for health and wealth and promise. And evil is also trying to flip the script. We know that the wilderness is a test. Who is the tester, and who is being tested. Jesus is being tested. We know that. He's being tempted by evil, but he's being tested by God. God is administering the test to reveal the truth about Jesus. Evil's trying to turn this into a test of God to bring God down from his perfection to be subject and to the, do the bidding of evil through Jesus. And Jesus sees right through it. Evil says, Psalm 91, yeah! And Jesus goes, Deuteronomy 6, yeah! Yeah! says, it's written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. We're not testing God. Jesus says, we're not testing God here. I'm being tested. It's perfectly 
utterly wrong to scrutinize God. By definition, God is right and good and perfect and beautiful. Who could test him? What student of relativity would test Einstein? Multiply that times a million. Who could test God? Point being, he doesn't get tested, doesn't need tested. He is. You don't test God. Remember the story of Job? He hung in there so long. And then at the end, weakened just a little bit. And my summary of the end of Job is, oh, whoa, Job, <laughs> you know who you're talking to here? I created everything. Sit down. I came home one day as a uh, freshman in college, uh, so I knew everything. <clears throat> and uh, told my dad a couple things he was doing wrong. <laughs> I've never seen my father like that before. He, did. he was not an angry man. He was not a vindictive man at all. He was very intense. I've never seen him that intense. Eyes were wide, and he listened to me explain how he should live his life. And uh, he said, Mike, until you are curled up in a ball beside your bed, wondering how you're going to provide for your family tomorrow, will you tell me how to live my life? We do this, don't we? We tell God what he should do. Testing, this is what you should do. What you're doing, God, is not quite right. You should do this. I'll tell you what, God, I'm going I'm to go this way, and if you bless it, then I will. What's God's purpose with this test of Jesus here? What is the purpose of this test? Of course, we're trying to reveal the truth. Well, what truth in particular are we trying to reveal here? What, what particular uh, aim does God have for you in the struggles of your life? And this is what I was proposing to you at the onset of the meeting, that Jesus' greatest accomplishment is that he had the power to do everything himself. But instead... He trusted God in every single microscopic or macroscopic opportunity of difficulty and challenge. He trusted God. The question here that's going on in this wilderness space of the second test isn't about whether scripture is true or not. It is. It's being twisted, but it's true. Or, or whether God is compassionate, whether he's a rescuer, he is. The question is, will Jesus, does Jesus trust who God is? Does he trust his plan, his provision, his protection, or is he going to take it into his own hands? And Satan, the Satan evil is saying, take it into your own hands here. Think about what was happening when I leapt from that retaining wall into my dad's arms. Was I testing him? Was I manipulating his love for me? 
Was I trying to build my confidence in him by forcing him to prove it? No. He already was something. I didn't need him to prove anything. I wasn't testing him. I was sincerely, deeply trusting him. The test here is whether Elo can get Jesus to doubt the Father and then live out of that doubt rather than trust. Are you with me? He's trying to get Jesus to doubt. Evil is tempting Jesus into a doubt-driven leap. A sincere leap of faith is vastly different from a cynical test. We are called on a daily basis to leap in the faith and in the trust we have in a good and gracious God. Evil wants us to leap from a foundation of doubt. The life of faith leaping is radically different than the life of doubt leaping. If evil can get Jesus to doubt, it will, he will be able to get Jesus to live wrong. Because we always live wrong from a foundation of doubt, from a mischaracterization of who God is. When we don't understand who God is and fully believe who he is, we live wrong. Evil, if evil can get Jesus to live a life rooted in doubt or us, he is getting us to live a life rooted in fear and insecurity. And if Jesus had bought into that, if he had leapt from that top of that mountain, before he got one inch into the air, everything would have been destroyed. You could argue apart from, uh, that Jesus, be careful here, I'll say it this way. You think I'd have this worked out by now? If Jesus wavers in his faith and his trust, he cannot do the work of the perfect son on the cross later. It's over. If he doubts God and leaps, it's over. He was the perfect son. He trusted, read Ephesians, Philippians 2, he trusted God completely unto an unjustifiable death that he could have prohibited easily, easily. He didn't do it. He didn't even preserve his own life. He trusted that this was the future God had for him at age 33. Are you kidding me? You've got to be kidding me. You don't believe Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane going, hey, can I die for the world's sins at 40? Is that a problem? 
Would that be okay? Why 30? I'm just getting started. Have you seen the disciples? They are not ready. Evil would be tempting them even in Gethsemane to lack the faith of God's plan. How could it be God's plan that my neighbor at age 34, with a beautiful wife and three beautiful children, could be cancerous and lose his life and be gone? That can't possibly be God's way. Well, what are we saying when we say that? God was out of control of that situation. He's no longer good. We cannot go there. Jesus would not go there at age 33. If this is the path, God, you have for me, if there's no other way, if you cannot take this cup from me, I will trust you. But this is madness. This is God crazy. Those two truths can live at the same time. We can trust God in the midst of the whispers of evil trying to get us to not trust him and give us all the reasons we shouldn't trust him. I cut this message in half this morning and I'm only halfway done with the message that I cut in half. <laughs> so we'll finish. Let me tease you with this. It is God's plan that Jesus will be thrown down and lifted up. Just not now. He's got to go through a lot before the throwing down and the lifting up of God's plan is executed. God opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. This isn't Jesus' time. We'll talk next week about how it is we try to lift ourselves up too soon. How we leave aside God and his plans and our understanding of who he is and try to control it and manage it ourselves and lift ourselves up in a way that threatens the lifting that he has planned for us in due time. God, we need your help. <clears throat> we need your help in message preparation timing. Uh, we need your help in um, uh, Tamalita's life and healing her broken femur. God, we need your help as people who have three quarters of our congregation without a place. Um, God, we trust that you are good all the time. That you are our place. And if we have you, we're home. And if we follow you, we're good. God, we pray that by your spirit, we would know how to differentiate. It's a very difficult thing. 
of our own personal responsibility for things, but never moving out of doubt in who you are. Help us, God, to trust you and thank you for the gospel. Thank you for your son who trusted you completely. We will fail. We have failed. We will continue to fail. We aren't going to make it to you, God, in our own lift. We trust your son and him alone for our eternal lift. The only one who has trusted you completely. We put our trust in him. Help us to follow his example of trust in this life so that we again live well and good as you've designed it. In Jesus' name, we pray all these things. Amen.